This is the 152nd podcast. It's called The Quackcast. My name is Mark Chrislop, and amongst other things, I am the president of the Society for Science-Based Medicine. I'm pimping that. Wander on over to the website, sfsbm.org, and check us out. This podcast is called Placebo Speculations. I have a new term to add to the English language, Ebola smacked, a derivative of the British term gobsmacked. Ebola smacked defines my life in the last few weeks since Ebola, or at least preparations for Ebola, have taken a huge bite out of my time with many interesting twists and turns. I think this is maybe the ninth outbreak. HIV, MERS, SARS, Legionella, H1N1, avian flu, West Nile, MRSA of my career probably more. It has certainly generated more hysteria relative to the risk than any to date. Many of my usual pastimes, like science-based medicine, have had to take a back seat to preparing for what will be a very unlikely but very disruptive event. We do not want to get caught with our hazmats down should a case of Ebola come wandering through the door. What makes life interesting, at least for me, is the constant realization that the more you know, the more there is to know. I like Richard Dawkins' metaphor in Climbing Mount Improbable, where he pictures scientific progress as a series of false summits extending into infinity. It sure seems that way. Every time I think I understand a topic, I find there is still more to learn. My dad told me when I graduated from medical school that half of everything I had just learned was probably not true. The only problem is I didn't know which half. The idea was somewhat valid. There have been ideas that have been abandoned since I was an intern, the most famous being that ulcers were due to stress and diet. But a new paradigm such as that has been the exception, not the rule. The last 30 years have been more about refining knowledge about the complexity of disease and its treatment, and perhaps equally importantly, having a better understanding of all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that can make results of a clinical trial suspect. There are a series of false summits in medicine, but each is only a foot above the preceding summit, more a series of very long, never-ending steps into ever more refined and sophisticated understanding of diseases. Recently, as an example, my gaster was flabbered to discover that there are now 36 interleukins. Where did all those come from? There were like six last time I looked. As the National ID meetings last week demonstrated, Yet again, there are a never-ending series of fine points for processes about which I thought I had a good understanding. It is one of the characteristics of pseudo-medicine for which I am jealous. Each practitioner sits at the summit of a perfect mountain, albeit one made of fog and delusion and unicorn tears, with a perfect and never-changing concept of a disease and its treatment. I think I have a good understanding of the placebo effect, although... Perhaps I should say I have my understanding of the placebo effect. The comments will no doubt suggest mine is not a universal interpretation, but given the enormity of my ego, I think it is the correct one in clinical medicine. I have had multiple posts on the topic of placebo, so rather than repeat myself, although I do love to quote me, the one-liner is, there is no placebo effect. Placebo, I know, I'm going beyond one line, or beer goggles, improving subjective endpoints with no change in objective endpoints. My archetype is the Penn & Teller BS episode 
where a lady reports her pain is better after treatment with a giant magnet that is actually a painted bent gutter downspout. But why are some people prone to having a placebo effect, a subjective improvement to a worthless intervention like homeopathy or acupuncture, or a real placebo as it is used in a clinical trial? Genes and placebo. I recently came across Outsmarting the Placebo Effect in Science, a short review of the underpinnings of the placebo response. It is interesting, although early work. The point of the article was to review the attempts to identify people who are prone to the placebo effect. There is some compelling economic reasons to do this. If you are designing a clinical trial, you want to know if your therapy is better than placebo. Unless, of course, you're doing alternative medicine research, then you don't care. The greater the placebo effect is in an intervention, the larger the number of patients you need to enroll to demonstrate efficacy, and the bigger the trial, the more it will cost. If you can minimize the placebo response, you can have smaller, less expensive, and faster-to-complete trials to show that a new therapy is effective. Dr. Catherine Hall found a relationship between the enzyme catechol-O-methyltransferase, COMT, and a placebo response. The COMT enzyme breaks down catecholamines, which are neurotransmitters. The COMT gene comes in two polymorphisms, either with a valine or a methionine amino acid at position 158. Since genes come in pairs, people can be valval, valmet, or metmet. The met-met form of the enzyme has less activity, leads to more dopamine, and, quote, has been correlated with variations in memory function, cognition, attentional processing, affect, confirmation bias, pain processing, and sensitivity. Met-met individuals have higher performance levels in cognitive tests, which measure executive function, as well as increased sensitivity to experimental and chronic pain, relative to Val-Met and Val-Val individuals. Which combination of genes is present is associated with perception of pain in people with Met-Met sense pain more acutely than those with the Val-Val form of the gene. But even more curious for this blog, Met-Met carriers also respond more to placebo. They had patients from a previous study of irritable bowel syndrome who were treated with waitlist, sham acupuncture offered in a no-frills business-like way, a limited placebo, and a, quote, limited placebo arm augmented with a supportive warm provider who expressed confidence in the effectiveness of the treatment, augmented placebo. In the original study, the more placebo offered, the better response in the IBSSSS score. Quote, IBSSSS includes abdominal pain severity, abdominal pain frequency, abdominal distension severity, dissatisfaction with bowel habits, and disruption of quality of life. So they went back and genotyped everyone and looked at their response and their genotype. It was a nice linear relationship. Met-Met had the most response on the IBS-SSS score, the Val-Val had the least, and the Val-Met were right in the middle. And there is more. Quote, Significantly more drug-specific as well as general side effects were reported in homozygous carriers of the VAL-158 variant during medication as well as placebo treatment compared to other genotypes. 
Val 158 carriers also had significantly higher scores in the somatosensory amplification scales and the BMQ, Beliefs About Medicine Questionnaire. Together, these data demonstrate potential genetic and psychological variables predicting nocebo responses after drug and placebo intake, which might be utilized to minimize nocebo effects in clinical trials and medical practice. End of quote. And MET carriers were impaired on emotional processing tasks compared with VAL carriers, with MET hetero and homozygotes experiencing larger subjective stress responses than VAL homozygotes. I recognize that genes are not destiny, and that the final understanding will be far more complicated, especially in an organ as complex as the brain. Well, some brains. The ID literature is growing with reports of various polymorphisms in toll-like receptors and other proteins with resultant increase or decrease in the risks of infections. My personal favorite is, quote, gene polymorphisms resulting in substitutions of glutamine with lysine at residue 223 in the carbohydrate recognition domain of SPA2 increases susceptibility to meningococcal disease as well as the risk of death. The translation? If you have the wrong snot, you are more likely to get meningitis and die. And this is but one of hundreds of subtle variations in genes that alter our risk for disease. As Willie said, the fault lies not in the stars, but in ourselves. This does lead to alternative and testable partial explanations for the continued popularity and loyalty to what should be worthless pseudo-medical interventions. It is not the innumerable flaws of modern medicine or the wonderful bedside manner of pseudo-medical providers. It could be that there is a subset of the population that is predisposed to the perceived benefit of a pseudo-medicine and receiving continuous positive reinforcement every time they get, say, an acupuncture treatment. It could also explain why so many different forms of acupuncture all have the same effects. It is not the beloved endorphins in the spinal fluid. Instead, acupuncturists are all stimulating the placebo centers in the predisposed. It would be very interesting to know the COMT composition of regular in a chiropractic or acupuncture clinic. Perhaps there is a preponderance of met-met polymorphisms in these practices. And it would be interesting to know how the Val-Val patients respond to standard therapy as well, since, quote, despite their best efforts, many a warm and caring physician has had a patient that seemed to derive minimum benefit from the empathic attentions. Our findings that Val-Val patients are less influenced by placebo treatment regardless of whether it is delivered in an augmented or limited context, could potentially shed some light on this clinical challenge. And what about the distribution in somaticizers, chronic pain patients, or the distribution in TAM attendees or in commenters to this podcast? I would love to know my own genotype, as well as how much Neanderthal DNA I have and where my genes come from. When asked my ethnic background... A popular question in Minnesota, Chrislop, what's that name from? I like to say my ancestors came from Hadar, Ethiopia. As I think I have mentioned in the past, I am sometimes skeptical of free will and consciousness, suspicious that both are an illusion. So I am biased in favors of studies like this that point to variations in the meat machine that could alter its function. 
it is interesting to think about and great grist for beer-fueled late-night discussions. Of Mice and Pain The May 2nd Science had an article called Male Scent May Compromise Biomedical Studies and Reviews How Mice Respond to Pain. Dr. Jeffrey Mogul studies pain in mice. Mice exhibit less pain response if there is someone in the room, even if that someone is a cutout of Paris Hilton. But even more curious, animals demonstrate even less pain response if there is a male in the room. They then refine the response even more. It is a smell of the male that the mice were responding to. Quote, So he told the people in the lab to place their worn t-shirts near injected animals and then leave the room. Even when humans weren't present, the results were the same. Rats and mice showed about a 36% lower score on the Grimace scale when exposed to male versus female t-shirts, the team reported online in Nature Methods. Female mice were slightly more sensitive to the effect. Placing a woman's t-shirt next to a man's t-shirt negated the impact. Bedding material from unfamiliar male mice and guinea pigs, as well as pet beds slept in by unsterilized male cats and dogs, produced the same response. Male odors seem to act like painkillers. He hypothesized that it is an evolved response to being potentially hunted. To show pain is to show weakness and make it more likely you will be attacked. How does this apply to humans? Interesting questions. Humans are not mice, although it is estimated we can detect a trillion, yes, a trillion smells. And those of you with teenage boys know this is not an underestimate. I like to think back to acupuncture studies and wonder what the gender of the acupuncturist was and if the gender of the therapist could have made a difference in the pain. It is an interesting potential confounding variable and would make for an interesting review of the acupuncture literature. Does the published literature demonstrate better results from a male versus a female acupuncturist? I remember one pain study and I can't locate it on the web or on my drive. So many references to find that particular needle in the PDF stack, where several acupuncturists were used in a trial, and only one had a consistent improvement on patient pain scores. I wish I could find the study, as I wonder about the gender of the acupuncturist, and perhaps the acupuncturist with the better results was a more manly man, perhaps a user of Old Spice. Acupuncture could be an excellent modality to tease out any effects on pain due to the gender of the provider. A researcher would not have to worry about any real physiologic effects. It is reasonably clear that the features most associated with responding to acupuncture are knowing you are receiving acupuncture and believing or being told that acupuncture works. Have male and female acupuncturists apply real and sham acupuncture, as if there is a difference? in a neutral manner and a double-blind methodology. It would be interesting to know if there is a gender difference due to the provider and the patient's pain. Another step up. Now back to Ebola preparations. And that ends the 152nd QuackCast. Be sure to check out the references at the appropriately entitled entry at Science-Based Medicine, Placebo Speculations, from October 17th, 2014. And of course, check out the Society for Science-Based Medicine, sfsbm.org.